Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. So I get the... uh opportunity of welcoming Graham to Burton next week, so I have to dial up on that a little bit. (laughs) Suit you, sir. (laughs) Let me just take in all the faces here. Who have we got here today? I knew that. I knew that. I only gave him one task. (laughs) Lovely. Well, you'd be surprised to know that actually carrying that through the centre of Derby, I've got a couple of strange looks this morning, but I'm used to getting strange looks, so it's nothing different. Okay, it's, it's really good to be with you. Um, greetings from Burton. Uh, we're really enjoying our time down there, and God is doing some amazing things in the church as well. So thank you for your continued support, both financially and prayerfully. It is really gratefully received. Um, yeah, we're on a mission together, and it really feels that way to me when I come back here. So I'm really looking forward to sharing what I believe God's put in my heart for us, the church, here today. So if you could be looking up Matthew 16 on whatever device you bring with you. And it was so good to be in the prayer meeting with Paul before the service because his first words out of his mouth Confirm to me what I should be bringing to the church today. I don't know if you can remember what you prayed, pray, Paul, but thank you so much. Sometimes when you get up to preach, you wonder if you're on the right track or sometimes. I believe this morning I've got something for the church here. So at 2 p.m. on the 3rd of June, 1978, I was standing at the front of a church in Sussex waiting for my lovely fiancée, Julie, to walk down the aisle to become my wife. There was much excitement, anticipation and trepidation as my beautiful bride wearing this perfect dress came down the aisle. And in the short address later on in the service, our pastor spoke about how foundational love would be the building block in a sound marriage. And he then reminded me about that sacrificial love found in Ephesians 5.25, which says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It was all about the sacrifice. So this text in Matthew 16 we're looking, for, looking at this morning is about the unstoppable building projects of Jesus Christ, his church, his glorious church, his bride for who he's returning one day. It's all about Jesus building his church in anticipation of his return. And this morning I want to focus on two main truths. And my prayer is that we will find fresh faith and confidence in what our God is doing. So let's read from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, 
son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so this morning, the first truth I want to share with you is this. His church is the invincible and indestructible purpose of God. By invincible, I mean that she is insurmountable, unconquerable and impregnable. And by indestructible, I mean she is unchangeable, permanent and eternally fixed. And the singular reason why we can be so sure that the church is invincible and indestructible is because Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build it. Note he does not say, I may build it, or I hope to build it. No, he is making an emphatic declaration of what he's going to do and why he is going to do it. Why? Because the church is the eternal purpose of God. It's not about the building that we meet in. It was never about that. But moreover, it's about us, his people, the living stones being built together for his glory, lest we should ever boast. When we read that Jesus will build his church, we can be absolutely sure that he will. Why? Because the very glory of God is at stake here in this building project. If the church doesn't get built, the glory of God will never be realised and the purposes of God would be frustrated. And because the glory and the purposes are at stake, it makes perfect sense that the maker and builder must be God and not ourselves. And we get this picture of him in Revelation as Lord of the church, walking through the lampstands, his churches, assessing their spiritual state, bringing words of reproof and encouragement. And he comes and he measures us in the light of his word, in the light of his spirit and his grace, and he's testing our hearts. What would he say about us here today, I wonder? I would never want to be in a church like the one in Ephesus in Revelation 2, where he says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Or in the church at Laodicea, where he says, you are neither hot nor cold, and because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I wouldn't want to be in a church like that. Let's do everything we can to ensure that we are not a, a lukewarm church. See, he's building us. It's ultimately his sovereign work. He called us. He chose us before the very creation of this world in Ephesians 1. And he who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. He's walking amongst his people, and that is why I wanted to share this, because it should bring us tremendous hope and comfort. Not that we should put our entire hope and comfort in the leadership of the church, because leadership must decrease and Christ must increase. Christ must be exalted. The glory of Christ must be lifted up. And the ultimate fruit and faithfulness of any local church must be when that church and leadership understand that Christ is the pastor of the church. He is the shepherd of the church and he is the king of the church. You must see we must build to Christ and him alone. Matthew in these verses reinforces our faith in that nothing can stop Jesus 
building his church. Note the intentional location where Jesus brings this word in verse 13. It's in Caesarea, Philippi. This was a notoriously pagan area. It was the centre of Baal worship. This district represented a stronghold of satanic activity, oppression and deception. It was the kind of place that you didn't want to be. And I guess Jesus could have gone into the Garden of Eden and said, I will build my church. No, he goes into Caesarea Philippi. And it's right there that he's going to give us the reason why the church is indestructible and invincible. He's making a point to his disciples and to us. We're in the middle of a satanic stronghold, but here I will build my church. Verse 18 further encapsulates this thought. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we need to remember that Jesus is not speaking from a position of weakness, nor is he being at all defensive. He is being utterly offensive. He is going on the offence. He is saying that he's going to storm the enemy camp. He's going to invade the dominion of darkness, that stronghold where death and sin reign. But he does it all as the Lord, who is the resurrection and the life, and who alone has all authority to go into that realm and to pass through that realm because he has the keys of death and hell. This morning, please remember that he has all authority to release captives from every situation. And when he comes to the gates of hell, they just can't stop him. The king of glory must be let in. The resurrected one has to go in. And when he goes in, he doesn't come out empty handed. He comes out with what with the children the father has given him. He goes in for the ones he bled for, for the ones he made atonement for. Jesus is building his church with people who were lost in their transgressions and sins. He's building it with you and I. There is no one beyond the grace and power of the risen Christ this morning. This is why the church is invincible. When Christ comes in the power of his word and spirit, he makes these gates of hell look utterly impotent. He is unstoppable. So that's the first truth. The church is invincible, indestructible and unstoppable. And one day Christ is returning for us, his bride. The second truth is found in how he will build his church. So look with me in Matthew 16, 21. <clears throat> From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And although it is true that Jesus will build his church by a sovereign act of his will and power, we must not conclude that he builds his church apart from various means. And there are many means in scripture that he uses, but how he builds his church is through the primary means of gospel preaching. I will go a step further on the basis of this text and say 
It is through preaching the truth of his cross. You see, as soon as Peter has a revelation from God in verse 16 that Jesus was the Christ, he understood his identity in Christ. He is fully God and fully man and the only mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And as soon as Peter has this revelation, Jesus affirms it. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in addition to this truth about my identity, Peter, you also need a further revelation about my mission. And we must keep preaching the truth of the cross. It starts to, sorry, Jesus starts to preach about his death and his betrayal, about his arrest, about being crucified and then raised. He immediately preaches to Peter and those gathered about his cross. He's going to die on the cross and he figuratively takes them to that cross. And as soon as Peter hears that Jesus is going to the cross, he immediately finds himself in league with Satan to stop that message. Why? Because the flesh doesn't want to hear about the cross. As soon as Peter heard that revelation about that cross, of what this was going to mean for Jesus to be beaten, humiliated and nailed to that cross, he repelled that. This wasn't the Messiah, the Saviour, the Son of God that Peter had imagined following. And so Peter immediately subjected to reducing, losing and misunderstanding the very heart of this wonderful gospel. That is why preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, the centrality of the cross, is so essential and fundamental. It is so important to preach Christ crucified because Christ crucified, condemned under the wrath of God, is the only means for the pardoning of our sins. It is the only way that sinners can be truly forgiven, declared righteous and brought into a relationship with the living God. Jesus building his church. It's a sovereign work and a sovereign act, and yet he uses means, and the means he uses is the preaching of his cross. But he doesn't stop there. He moves on in verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. When it comes to building his church, Jesus just doesn't call us to preach about the cross. We do, and that's critical because it's justification by grace alone. But Jesus goes on to say that the disciples, those who are truly expressing real faith in him, must deny themselves take up their cross and follow him too. And this verse shows us that Jesus is inviting them into a lifestyle of repentance and sanctification. He's calling them into a real union with himself by which every sinner becomes the benefactor of all the spiritual blessings in Christ. When we come to him, we receive the grace of justification. We are immediately forgiven. We're irreversibly accepted and declared righteous with God. That's so wonderful. We are no longer under the works of the law and no works that we bring to the table could ever contribute one iota to our new position before the throne of grace. 
and yet together with the same Christ who we are united with, there comes a new life, a new nature, a new heart in which God writes his law. A spirit of holiness dwells in you and me and he gives you a new mind. He gives you a new disposition. And what Jesus is saying is that I'm not preaching a gospel that builds a superficial church that's made up merely of numbers. It's a church that was built on sound theology and sound teaching and one that always has the cross as its central point. And notice something really important here. Notice the order in this passage. He preaches his cross first. Then he calls us, his disciples, to take up our cross. And this order is critical because if you attempt to take up your cross first and follow him in an attempt to get right with God or to kind of help Jesus along with the cross, you will end up in bondage, in captivity. We must allow Jesus and his cross to be preeminent. We don't need to add or take away anything from the cross. When Jesus died, he was representing you and I when he obeyed and offered to his father a spotless, perfect life for the 33 years he had walked amongst his people. And he did it not just for himself. He was doing it for us who would put our faith in him. That righteousness that he himself actually acquired was being done for us. And the death of Christ, when he bore our sins and when he fully exhausted the wrath of God, that too was done for us. Why was that? So that when we come to Christ, it's through grace and grace alone. We receive it by faith. And as we receive his cross and keep that cross central and primary in all our preaching as the main building block of his church, building truth into people's lives, we say it's Christ and Christ alone. And here's what that means. Whoever has been truly united to him by faith through forgiveness and acceptance lives a lifestyle consistent with denying themselves, taking up their cross and following him. And that is sanctification. We're going to bear fruit in our lives. Amen. Why? Because we have a gospel that is the almighty power of God. A gospel that's not afraid to tell the sinner to repent. A gospel that's not afraid to talk about the very real wrath of God. And a gospel that isn't ashamed to say that the creator was nailed naked to a cross for your forgiveness. And there is nothing more that you and I can do or add. And if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with sin, feeling too dirty or ashamed to come to him, then let me share the simplicity of this glorious gospel with you. In the gospel, God commands sinners to come to him just as we are. This is not the time to become introspective. Come just as you are. And when you throw yourself upon the Saviour, the promise of God is that he forgives you he accepts you. He adopts you as a son and daughter into his very house. 
And when this same God who lavished love on you, who forgave you and welcomed you, now calls you and says, I love you, now live like my son. We are being changed into the likeness of the very son of God through union with Jesus Christ. Friends, these are precious truths that we must continually master and never lose sight of because Satan's tactics and schemes will always be exposing the weak place in your armour where in the quiet times you are susceptible to those little barbed words of condemnation and guilt. It's only when we're studying, it's only when we are beholding and drinking of Christ that we can be truly built up and can walk in a way fully pleasing to him. And so my prayer this morning is that you have seen with fresh eyes that Jesus is going to build his church. He is going to sovereignly build it. That's his eternal purpose for the glory of God. And he's going to build it through preaching Christ and him crucified. When we think of what Naomi brought earlier about 20 people coming to know Christ this year, it's through preaching Christ and him crucified. So at the start of this new year, as you work together to build something here and in Burton to the glory of his name, let me remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul as he exhorted Timothy. Can I ask you please just to stand? I want to pray these words over this church here this morning. This is 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 and this is what Paul said to Timothy as he sent him out. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Jubilee Church, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So... In closing, let's preach the gospel, let's preach the cross, let's preach it into our communities, but let's keep preaching it to one another as well. Let's be rooted and built up and a people who truly glorify God in all we do. God's bride, the local church, is the hope of this world. Amen. Thank you.